Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, July 1st, 2019. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. And in our feature presentation, we'll talk with Chris Evangelista about Stranger Things 3, or Stranger Things Season 3, whatever you want to call this thing. Uh, my name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's podcast by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys. So we have some news to get into before we talk about Stranger Things. I'm very curious what you think about that, Chris. But before we dive into that, let's dive under the sea uh, for Disney's live action Little Mermaid. Some casting news dropped on Friday afternoon. Chris, what's the latest there? Uh, Yeah, so Disney will never, ever stop making these live action remakes. And The Little Mermaid is next. They actually announced this a little while ago. I think it was like 2016. But... We hadn't heard anything about it over, you know, the last few years, but now they're talking about it again. And uh, apparently, uh, Melissa McCarthy is in talks to play Ursula, the the sea witch villain of the film. Um, you know, nothing's final yet. It's just uh, like pl- early talks, but that's it. Looks like that's the direction they're leaning towards. Okay, so I, I got to throw this out to you guys. Um, Brad, I want to throw it to you first because you're sort of our re- resident comedy guy. Uh, and Melissa McCarthy, obviously primarily known for her comedic work. She's done some dramatic stuff here and there as well. But um, what do you make of the idea of Melissa McCarthy stepping into a role like this? Um, I, In general, I like it. Uh, Melissa McCarthy is definitely um, best known for her comedic roles, but she has shown uh, fantastic strength in drama recently with uh, can you ever forgive me? She was also great in St. Vincent. It looks like she's going to be fantastic in the kitchen. Um, and the role of Ursula, even though she's a villain, there are comedic aspects to her character because she's uh, she's very salty and sassy uh, and like literally, you know, uh, throw, throws her weight around as far as her attitude with how she treats Ariel and talks to her two electric eel uh, henchmen. Uh, so the, I think it's a role that Melissa McCarthy can easily uh, tackle. Um, she'll probably infuse it with maybe a little bit more comedy than we saw in the original movie, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what she can do with it. 
HT, did The Little Mermaid mean anything to you growing up? I know you're like slightly <laughs> younger than me, but this this was one of the um one of the movies that was in my rotation a lot as a kid. Oh, for sure. I watched The Little Mermaid a lot. It was probably one of my most beat up VHS uh, boxes just because I absolutely adored this movie and would rewatch it over and over again. Um, and yeah, I, I have a big affinity for this story and this movie. Um, I'm also really fascinated by just like the original fairy tale for it too, which is much darker, uh, as you would expect. I do have some mixed feelings about this casting because while I really enjoy Melissa McCarthy and I think that when she dips into her dramatic roles, she's really talented and, uh, surprisingly, um, impressive, uh, the, the fact is that um, Ursula, her appearance at least, was based off a, a famous drag queen named Divine. And I wonder if this role may have been better suited towards an LGBT actor or musician or actress, uh, either a drag queen or someone of the like. Uh, so that was something that kind of made me uh, pause a bit with this casting news. So, Jacob, what do you think about Melissa McCarthy playing Ursula? Like, do you think she has the pipes to be able to pull this off? Because I'm thinking of, like, the, the big song from Ursula is Poor Unfortunate Souls. And that that uh, song has such, like, passion. It's so over the top. Do you think that she'll be able to, like, hit those notes? We haven't really seen her perform in that way before. For all I know, Melissa McCarthy can sing, and she can sing well. Uh, but not being able to sing has not stopped modern musicals from casting people in the past. Look like at Johnny Depp talking his way through Sweeney Todd. Uh, I don't know. This whole thing stinks. This whole thing is a bunch of fish dead on a dock after a week. Um, <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> uh, I'm just waiting for uh, 10 years from now, after Disney has finished adapting all his movies to live action, and starts making all the live action versions into animation again and taking all the new changes into animation, changing even more. <laughs> then 10 years after that, they adapt those versions into live action. We enter this never-ending cycle of Disney abusing itself over and over again until the world dies. God. Wow. Um, so, hey, Ben, we do have a little bit of breaking news, coincidentally enough, about Little Mermaid that's happening right now as we're recording this. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, it looks like Jacob Tremblay and Aquafina are now in talks for Disney's live-action Little Mermaid. Jacob Tremblay... Uh, would be voicing Flounder, Ariel's uh, best friend, who is a fish. Uh, and Aquafina would play Scuttle, uh, who is Ariel's seagull friend, uh, who is a little bit uh, crazy. <laughs> I gotta say, Aquafina as Scuttle seems like kind of inspired casting. I'm I'm on board for that. Anybody else here? Yeah, I uh, like that. I'm fine with it, but it's wild because Buddy Hackett played that character in the original, and it's like such a, a drastic change going from Buddy Hackett to Aquafina. Chris, whatever do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I guess that, that'll that do it for our, uh, our discussion on The Little Mermaid. I'm sure we'll have more casting news and more to talk about with that film uh, coming up. Um, oh, we should also mention that Lin-Manuel Miranda is, is producing this movie. He's also helping out Alan Menken uh, write the music for it. So um, just for people who uh, may be a little hesitant about it, uh, Rob Marshall is directing. That gives me a lot of hesitation personally, but maybe the music will be decent. I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to talk about this later on. But in the meantime, let's shift over and talk about some big news that broke over the weekend, and that is some news about a Sandman TV series. Brad, what's going on here? 
Yes, indeed. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Neil Gaiman's Sandman is quite the popular and beloved comic book uh, from the recently defunct DC Comics Vertigo label. And this is a project that Warner Brothers has been trying to turn into a movie for a long time. Uh, it stretches back to uh, the the early 2000s when uh, things were in development for this. It's over. Um, it's gone into various stages of development, different iterations. Uh, the most recent attempt um, was three years ago at New Line Cinema. Before that, there was another version that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was attached to produce, direct, and star in. Uh, but they've always had problems trying to get it off the ground. Uh, so now it seems they've decided that the best direction for a Sandman adaptation is a TV series. And Warner Brothers TV has apparently struck a deal with Netflix uh, to co-produce that now. It will be written by Wonder Woman scribe Alan Heinberg. Uh, executive produced by Neil Gaiman, along with David Goyer, who were part of the most recent attempt to turn it into a feature film. And apparently this was a big deal. A, uh, a specific number was not mentioned, but apparently it was so uh, expensive that that was why HBO ended up passing on it, even though they are um, part of Warner Media, just like Warner Brothers Television is. Uh, so Netflix picked up the ball and decided to uh, go with it. And it's kind of fortuitous because uh, there was a time a few years ago Back when the uh, the movie version at New Line kind of fell apart, uh, screenwriter Eric Heisserer uh, had said that he came to the conclusion that the best version of this property uh, exists as an HBO series or limited series, not as a feature film, not even as a trilogy. The structure of the feature film really doesn't mesh with this, so I went back and said, here's the work I've done, this is where it should be, it needs to go to TV. And that was kind of the last we had heard about the project. So. Um, it's not clear if any of what was developed or uh, written before by Eric will be used and inform uh, what Alan is working on for this new version. But uh, this is something that uh, fans of the comic have wanted to see for a long time. And so it'll be interesting to see if they can actually pull it off and give it a, a satisfying adaptation. I'm curious, has anybody here, aside from Jacob, because I'm, I'm almost certain Jacob has read this, has anybody here, aside from Jacob, read Sandman? Because this has been something that's been on my radar for a long time, but I've just not made the time to to read this. Um, HC, Chris, have you guys read this? I have, and it's excellent. It's just so weird and um, at times grotesque and dreamy, uh, fittingly. I've made the mistake of reading it shortly before bed and it gave me nightmares, but it's really beautiful piece of work. And um, I was excited for a potential uh, film adaptation of this. I wasn't sure how it would come about. I don't know if TV is the exact right medium, but it does, the story itself is kind of more vignettes and short stories than one long overarching arc. So maybe it is the, the best place for it. Hmm. Um, Chris, Brad, have you guys read this? Uh, I have not. I, I really like Neil Gaiman. I've always wanted to read this. I've just always been kind of like overwhelmed by it because I don't even know how many issues there are. Uh, there was like this huge collection that came out, but it's, it was like insanely expensive. And I have this weird thing where I don't like, I, I need to have, if it's like a comic series like this, I need to have all the issues at once or else I can't start it like my brain won't let me because i feel like oh i need to have them all so i i need to have them all or i can't read it so mm -hmm. one day yeah i haven't read it either but uh when i was putting the story together i did notice that there was a, a cool uh two-part uh or two-volume omnibus edition of sandman where it looks like it comes in like a cool uh leather-bound book style kind of thing and i i was thinking about maybe picking that up at some point to read it jacob is this an ongoing thing or is it done 
Uh, Sandman itself, the core series, is done. It was 75 issues, I believe, published throughout the 90s. It is all in print. I think there's 10 trade paperbacks. Uh, there's two omnibuses, as Brad said, and there are five absolute editions, which are the very large, oversized uh, things that collect everything Neil Gaiman himself wrote for Sandman, along with the other artists who collaborated on it. So it is all one story, beginning to end, and done, uh, including a collection of short stories that Gaiman uh, wrote that's included in most of those packages. So it's actually, it actually has, has a beginning, a middle, and end. It is a complete work. Uh, recently, I think last year, uh, DC under Vertigo, which is now defunct, so it's going to be just DC now, did launch a series of four new titles that are set in the Sandman universe that Gaiman is overseeing but not directly writing. So those are all optional. Uh, those is something, if you're interested in the universe already and are committed, you can keep on reading them. They act as a sequel to the series and pick up supporting characters and supporting plot lines, and they're generally pretty good, although they're not Sandman. My main issue with this is that so many comics are written to be like, what is a story that could also be a movie or TV show that I can tell in comic book form? Whereas Sandman is designed very specifically to be a comic book first and foremost. It is a story and a structure built to take full advantage of what comics can do that other things cannot do. And that means that uh, protagonists come in and out of the story. Uh, you know, tone and theme shift. Uh, stories can last as long as 30 pages or as long as 500 pages. It is playing with form and format in ways that not even television can do properly. Like, there's entire arcs of Sandman, or the main character, the, the titular character, Morpheus, the Sandman, the, the uh, guy who, the embodiment of dreams, uh, like, barely plays a part. He's just sort of off to the side as you focus on characters we're never going to see again. And it's part of the series' charm that, that it... That it is about a universe as opposed to about characters. And I do not know how a TV show pulls this off. I'm ready to be surprised, but there's a reason why this is so hard to adapt. Before we move on, Jacob, what you just described reminded me a lot of Watchmen, the original comic, graphic novel, whatever you want to call it, where that was also a property that was very much like playing with the form and doing something that could only exist in a, in a, a comic book uh, you know, a, a heart, you know, like a paper issues, like old school comic books, right? And and that property has been adapted into a movie. And then Damon Lindelof has the show coming up where he's sort of riffing on elements that existed in it. It takes place afterwards. So does does what has happened with Watchmen give you any pause about what might happen here? Or do you think that there's like an interesting roadmap that they could use? Any, any mistakes that Watchmen has made in those adaptations that you think uh, Sandman could learn from? I uh, think that Zack Snyder's Watchmen is a noble failure. I think it's attempt to be so exacting and adapting the events and plot points and imagery of the comic that it miss, misses the forest for the trees in a significant way. It captures the plot uh, piece by piece while missing the tone and the structure and the ideas that kept that plot fresh and kept it interesting on, on the page and kept it a commentary on superheroes as opposed to being just a superhero story. So I think what Sandman needs to do, uh, the, the TV version, is not do that exacting adaptation. They need to look at the tone of, of Sandman and say, what makes this work? And then reformat to fit TV. Because if you adapt it exactly, you're going to get something that does not fit right in the eyes, ears, or mouth. It's just going to feel like something a clunky thing they need to completely restructure uh, and reorganize neil gaiman's ideas 
uh, for this new format. Trying to go the full 100% faithful route will be a disaster. Okay. I feel like uh, I wanted to make a little addition. I feel like the tone was always at the forefront of Sandman anyways. The plot points were almost peripheral or not actually as important because... I do remember in the first couple issues, there was some sort of arc happening, but the stories that always captured me the most were the ones that were just kind of the the one, one-off one stories, the ones that didn't really have Morpheus in the center and had him appear at the end or something. And I feel like that could be done well in almost an anthology series of some kind, perhaps. Uh, but that's um, all up in the air for now. H.T., hmm. uh, uh, Tom Hiddleston from Morpheus? Uh, wait, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excited about that. All right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like Netflix is definitely interested in building a world here. So we'll have to see what sort of approach they take. Because, um, yeah, what you guys are saying, it, it sounds like maybe you could pull this off in sort of an episodic kind of way. But uh, fraught territory ahead for them, because especially since this is such a, a beloved uh, property. So we'll track this as it develops. Uh, in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about Avengers Endgame, which is a movie that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, um, specifically the ending. So we are going to spoil Avengers Endgame if you're one of the three people on the planet who have not seen this movie yet. Please uh, pause this episode or, or watch the movie and then come back and listen. So this is your final spoiler warning for people who are scrambling to find their pause buttons right now, giving you just a little bit of extra time. Okay, all right. So let's talk about the end of Avengers Endgame. HC, the Russo brothers are still going around talking about what happened during the ending of this movie. What is the latest that they've said? I'm sure, you know, they're going to have a whole uh, Hall H panel at Comic-Con where they're probably going to answer even more questions. But before we get there, what's the latest thing they've said? Well, they're back on that uh, explanation tour for the Avengers Endgame theatrical re-release. And they tease that uh, the ending for Captain America, in which we see we meet old Captain America after he has uh, what, gone back in time and lived out his life with Peggy Carter, the love of his life, and aged into old age and is now living peacefully in retirement, um, that that might not but necessarily be the end for Steve Rogers in the MCU. Uh, it's They talk about how Steve going back in time sets up a branch reality, which is essentially an alternate timeline, and that this could potentially leave some room to explore in a storytelling capacity. What Joe Russo says is, quote, when Captain America goes back, he would create a branch reality. Now he would exist in that branch reality with a second Captain America who is frozen in ice. What's also a story for another time is if he created a branch reality, he would then have to use a pin particle to come back. Um, he's speaking about going to uh, get a pin particle so that he would be able to go to the time in which Peggy Carter and he would be reunited and live out their lives. So it seems like Joe Russo is hinting that we could explore this story, um, this you know adventure that Steve Rogers has in returning all of the um, uh, Infinity Stones to their proper times and deciding to get a pin particle and go back to his original time. So maybe we'll see that in either a Disney Plus streaming service or some other form. Um, but they seem to be leaving the door doors open for maybe Chris Evans to reprise his role for one last uh, appearance. H.J., do you think that's likely that Chris Evans will come back? Probably not. <laughs> he doesn't seem like he is eager to return to the MCU. I think he's uh, closed that chapter of his book. But um, 
maybe if I could see this cap being told in like a comic book even, but if if it's only something for Disney Plus potentially, he might come back because that requires less um, commitments mm-hmm. than a full-fledged film series again, and he could do maybe just like something akin to a Marvel one-shot or something like that. So, I mean... It's a maybe, essentially. Yeah. Brad, what do you think? You, you cover superheroes pretty regularly on, on Slash Film. Do you think that um, that this is purposefully leaving the door open for future Captain America stuff? Do you think they're just setting up like the what-if animated series here that we know is coming to Disney Plus? Or do you think there's something you know more that could potentially be done here? I'm, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I, I, I do feel like they left it open purposely for the possibility to bring him back at some point or for something to maybe happen in that new branch of reality that he, you know, created for himself. But I also wonder if maybe there's some uh, twist or tie-in that could see Captain America popping up briefly for, like, an episode of the Loki series. Like, maybe something that Loki does uh, in the branch of reality that he's dealing with since he, uh, you know, escaped that uh, 2012 timeline with the Tesseract will me- maybe mess with something that Captain America has going on where he where he is. Maybe they'll somehow cross, cross paths or something like that. Mm. Um, but the the mystery as far as the him getting a hold of more pin particles is that that really shouldn't be a problem because I'm pretty sure that he had some that he took with him because the whole idea initially was everyone thought he was coming back. So he's, he still should have pin particles on him that he could use to come back at any time. Yeah, that's true. I think... Somebody needs to like make a a full breakdown once this movie is uh, is officially out there and and uh, make me like a, a flow chart or something to show me what can happen there. But um, let, let's stay in the MCU for just a minute and uh, HT, tell us what Kevin Feige had to say about the Defenders recently. So Kevin Feige was recently asked whether the Netflix um, Marvel heroes would be making a uh, debut in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he said that uh, he doesn't know, essentially. Um, He says in a quote to BET, there were a lot of great characters that were on those Netflix series. And I think there is a period of time. It'll be a while before we could use any of them based on what the contracts were. So I'm not sure. And also even answering that question is a spoiler, but there are some great Marvel characters there. And these characters he was, he's referring to are the characters uh, in Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and perhaps even the Punisher, uh, played by Charlie Cox, Kristen Ritter, Mike Coulter, Finn Jones, and John Berthal, respectively, all of whose shows have been canceled by Netflix. And uh, fans were hoping would possibly get picked up by Disney+, Plus, but we're hearing not a peep out of that. So it's uh, likely that these... Uh, shows will be left in the dust and that these characters will likely be recast before they make their way into the MCU. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when when all of these cancellations of these Marvel Netflix shows were going down, we ended up writing a piece about how these shows were restricted from moving to or being resurrected at Disney Plus for at least two years. That was in their contract. And, and these cancellations happened right around the end of 2018. So that would be the end of 2020 at the earliest for when the shows could be reunited or, or, or uh, yeah, resurrected, resuscitated, whatever. Um, and then I guess maybe if they appeared on Disney Plus, that would technically be part of the MCU since uh, now the Disney Plus Marvel shows are going to be overseen by Marvel Studios, the same people who are running the movies. So there is the chance, I guess, that this stuff could all sort of, you know, uh, dovetail again in, in a few years. But uh, yeah, with, with actor contracts and, you know, these people aren't just going to sit around for a couple of years and wait to see if this ends up happening. So I'm guessing we're not going to see 
these characters in this same form again, um, at least with the same creative people and teams and all of that stuff involved. So uh, we'll have to see what Kevin Feige and, and his team end up deciding to do with these characters and whether they end up in the movies or different shows and, and all of that stuff. So um, yeah, I just figured that was worth a quick update for people who may be wondering about the future of those characters. Uh, speaking of quick updates, I wanted to give two quick ones about some theme park stuff that we talked about recently. This is not going to take very long at all, but um, recently Jacob, Peter, and I were on an episode of the podcast where we talked a lot about uh, the Country Bears uh, Jamboree attraction and how there was a big rumor going around that that um, attraction might be shutting down uh, in time for Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary on October 1st, 2021. And it turns out that the Disney Parks blog, the official site of the Disney theme parks, um, which very rarely comments on theme park rumors, actually came out and addressed that rumor head on uh, several days after it was originally sort of circulating and they uh, turned it down there. They shot it down. They said that the country bear jamboree is not going into hibernation anytime soon. In fact, we're looking forward to celebrating its 50th anniversary uh, with the gang basically. Um, so, uh, you know, we devoted a long chunk of the podcast to talking about that. And I just felt that everybody listening who cares about that deserves the update that that is not actually happening. Um, I, I wonder personally if, uh, Disney saw the outcry there and and the negative reaction and maybe changed their minds or something and they're uh, you know they waited a week or whatever to be like oh yeah this is isn't actually happening but it was them scrambling behind the scenes to figure out a way to keep this in in intact but um, I don't know I guess we'll never know uh, and then finally really quickly the uh, Main Street Electrical Parade which is like one of the most beloved uh, Disney parades in all of Disney parks is coming to Disneyland for a limited edition, limited time run from August 2nd to September 30th uh, of this year. And Peter was on the podcast recently talking about how empty um, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and Disneyland and California Adventure were uh, because of the way that Disney... Uh, I guess just organized the whole rollout of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And so the idea here is that because this is a limited time thing and they're bringing back this parade, which is a, again, a, a sort of an institution for Disney, but it hasn't been in the park for a couple years now. Um, the timing is, is probably not coincidental. They're trying to lure people back into the parks. And uh, since, because, you know, obviously empty parks in the summer is not great for their business. So uh, that was it. Just the, I wanted to give those, those updates for people really quickly. Um, let's move on into our last news item of the day. And that is that a Hellraiser TV series is coming. Chris, what's going on with this? Um, there's almost zero info. Basically, what we know is that the rights have been finalized to make a Hellraiser TV series, but there's no creative team in place yet. There's no home for it yet, whether it be a network or a, or a streamer. We just know it, it's in the works. Um, uh, we reported a little while ago, there's also a Hellraiser remake in the works from David Goyer, but this is something completely separate so it just looks like there's a lot of hellraiser in our future so i think chris when we were talking about that remake you uh were talking about how the idea of a remake is actually not um offensive to you because you feel like there was a lot of potential in that story that wasn't necessarily capitalized on in that first movie what do you think about hellraiser in the tv space instead of a movie or in addition uh, to I a mean movie i guess I mean, it depends on where they, they take it. Like, if, there's no way this can be, like, on network TV, but if it ends up, like, on HBO or, or Netflix and they're able to, you know, go wild with it, uh, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of mythology they could use to build something interesting here, especially if they take a, 
anthology route where each season tells a completely different story in the Hellraiser uh, universe. I, I definitely think there's room here for something good, provided they hire, you know, talented people to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jacob, you strike me as somebody who appreciates the Hellraiser movies, maybe with the good and the bad that uh, that, that entails. Uh, what do you make of this? Uh, what I make of this is that Chris is completely right about an anthology route, because Hellraiser went wrong when it started treating uh, the Cenobites, the demonic figures at the center of it, as the main villains. The early Hellraiser films, they're kind of on the periphery in a good way. They're ultimately these stories about human beings who damn themselves and invite hell into their lives and encounter these creatures because they have made, you know, foolish mortal decisions. So I think a uh, anthology series or even, you know, something that tells stories in limited arcs that follows a group of people who, uh, for whatever reason, you know, unlock hellish forces and have to face the consequences is the way to approach this. Try to make a series where the Cenobites are the main characters or the main focus every time dilutes their power, makes them into something cheesy and silly, which is what we saw over the course of 10 movies, which got increasingly terrible along the way. <laughs> All right. So I'm sure we'll be talking more, much more about this as it comes on. And, and I hope that, uh, like Chris said, that they bring on some talented folks to um, to handle this. Actually, Chris, Jacob, do you guys have any suggestions for, or maybe not suggestions, because who knows how many Hollywood people are actually listening to this and, and taking our advice, but um, maybe like a dream team behind something like this? Any, any particular filmmakers or storytellers that uh, immediately come to mind that you would love to see uh, tackle a Hellraiser TV show? Yeah, I have one. I'm going to recommend uh, Can Evrenol, the uh, Turkish filmmaker whose 2015 film Baskin really, for lack of a better word, fucked me up at Fantastic Fest. Uh, that movie does not make logical sense. It has sort of a dream thing going on, uh, but it descends into this absolute nightmare of practical effects and gooey ickiness, and the whole thing feels deeply horribly unpleasant in a way that best hellraiser stories do so i think that hollywood should find this guy and get him on this stat chris any suggestions from you um uh, my pick would be i don't think he would do tv but i I, or he might i don't know but my pick would be uh panos cosmatos i probably said his name wrong but the guy directed mandy because there's like a direct like hellraiser reference in mandy and I, i you know he's he's great at really weird trippy nightmarish visuals and that's the kind of thing you need for something like this so uh you know this is strictly a fantasy thing i i have i have no belief that he'd actually do this <laughs> but i i would like it if he did yeah me too he was he was my pick as well so uh definitely on the same page there all right so now we're going to transition into chris you reviewed stranger things season three recently and uh just for anybody who might be gun shy about this kind of thing we're not going to really spoil any of the details of the show. We're just going to talk about it in broad strokes, maybe the premise and um, Chris's general thoughts about this. And I want to open the floor up to any of us who are on the podcast to ask Chris like specific questions about it too. But before we get into that, Chris, what did you make of Stranger Things 3? How, how does this compare to the previous two seasons? Uh, yes. The, so, you know, my, my review up on slashfilm.com is as spoiler free as possible because Netflix takes this very seriously they actually sent me like a a laundry list of things specifically not to mention in you know a review or any sort of thing before the premiere they and a lot of uh outlets you know this is going to make me 
sound like I'm humble bragging and I guess I am, but a lot of places didn't even get access to screeners. We, we got, we got lucky in that we were one of the very few sites uh, that was granted access to the full season, not just like a select few, but the whole season. So, uh, you know, with that said, it's, it's really good. Um, I was not a big uh, fan of season two. I loved season one because it sort of came out of nowhere and, you know, there was no hype around season one. It was just this thing that just, took me by surprise and yes it's it's derivative and yes it's drawing on nostalgia but it's drawing on nostalgia of things you know i really love like that first season is pretty much you know what if steven spielberg made a stephen king movie and that's you know that to me is like my my dream team so i love that first season you know it, it wasn't without its flaws but i it took me by surprise and i really loved it uh season two i didn't <laughs> i didn't like that much it had its moments but it felt I don't know if I want to say bloated, but it, it felt sort of listless. It felt directionless and they didn't know what they were doing. They, they were trying really hard to not do the same exact thing. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, they sort of took away what made that first season so magical to me. And the new characters they introduced, I did not care for at all. I felt they added nothing to the show and I was just not a fan. So I was a little apprehensive about season three, but I'm, I'm pleased to report season three is pretty, pretty darn great. I would even say it might be the best season. It's, it's definitely the most entertaining season. Um, the, the new characters that I didn't like in season two are actually really good this season. They found something for them to do. There's also another new character uh, played by Maya Hawk, who is, fantastic she's a great addition to the show and i hope they keep her around and uh, it's just a it's a it's much more confident than season two it's a, a lot more entertaining it's a lot gorier which i was not expecting it, it, it goes into really sort of like graphic gory stuff this season and it's a lot more emotional uh the what the first thing you're going to notice when you watch this season is everyone you know those kids don't look like kids anymore you, you go back you look at that first season they look like kids you watch this season they're really growing up and it's it's for one thing it reminds you of your own mortality because it's like oh shit i'm hurtling towards oblivion here because these kids are growing up which means i'm also getting older but the show doesn't like shy away from you know them getting older it's sort of like the arc of the season it's about time passing it's about growing up and uh, it, it hits these emotional beats that I wasn't really expecting. And they really got to me um, the, you know, I, without giving away any spoilers. I'll just say like the, the last episode is so like emotionally pitch perfect that I got, you know, I got misty eyed. I, I got, I teared up and I, I, you know, I was definitely not expecting that at all. So uh, if you like me, were not a fan of season two, uh, stick with it. Cause you're going to be rewarded. If you like season two, I think you'll, you'll like this even more. All right, so does anybody have any questions for Chris about uh, Stranger Things 3? I, I know I have one, but I want to give you guys, I want to open this up if you guys have any any specific uh, inquiries in mind. How do the uh, references feel in this one? Because I like season one, but I feel like it leans very heavily on, here's a thing you like, remix for a new generation. Uh, you like this, right, Nudge Nudge? And so I'm wondering, is that still like a main presence or has it been like more evenly worked into the storyline and character? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's definitely still there. I actually took a list of every reference I noticed as I watched it. And I'm going to have a piece up on the site on the premiere date that lists all the references. And it, some are really overt. Um, some are 
not, you know, there, I, I don't want to use, there's nothing subtle about this show. So I don't want to use the term subtle, but some of them are worked into the plot much better than, uh, you know, you would expect. Some of them are really overt to the point where, uh, see, this is hard cause I, I can't say what they are cause they're spoilers, but there's, there's one reference that it's so blatant that the characters actually like say the movie that's being referenced out loud. And <laughs> I don't know if that's like the, 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 you know, the Duffer brothers being cheeky and being like, look, we know this isn't subtle. We're going to have the characters themselves comment on how unsubtle it is. I don't know, but we'll, we'll see. You know, I, I think, I think you won't be disappointed, Jacob, but you, there are going to be moments where you're going to roll your eyes and be like, Jesus Christ, tone it down just a little bit. <laughs> um, HT, Brad, do you guys have any questions about anything? How is the soundtrack? Not not just the score, but are there? Uh, what about the like the needle drops? It's good. There, it seems like there's a lot more this season than I remember there being in the previous seasons. But it doesn't, you know, it never hits like Suicide Squad territory where you know like sympathy <laughs> for the devil plays when something devilish is hit. like it never gets that bad. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a really cool, you know, if if you grew up with the music like I did because I'm an old man, um, you'll you'll dig. You'll dig this soundtrack. HT, anything? I think I, I'm out of no questions, Your Honor. <laughs> no questions at this time. Uh, <laughs> the, the one that I wanted to ask you, Chris, was I think I haven't rewatched season two since it came out. But looking back on that, m- one of my biggest disappointments was it or with it was the way that it sort of split up the core cast a little bit. It, it, it seemed, in my memory anyway, it seemed like the... Uh, team friend unit that was so great in season one was sort of um thrown to the winds a little bit in season two does this season bring everybody back together in in a way uh it does at the same time it does um because there's so many characters now there's like there's more than there's ever been it does this thing that i liked a lot more than season two where season two felt like there were like two different groups there was the main group and then there was you know 11's subplot this season what it does is it breaks everyone up into sort of units like um dustin and steve and that new character robin have their own subplot going on at at the new mall and then 11 and max become friends and they have their own subplot going on and then you know the the main the main boy characters have their own plot going on and then like joyce and hopper have their own story going on and while these are all individual stories, they're all serving the same narrative and they all come together in a really rewarding way. That sounds fantastic. So season three of Stranger Things drops on Netflix on July 4th, which is this Thursday. Uh, you can go to slashfilm.com right now and read Chris's full review of season three. I would encourage everybody to do that. I have it bookmarked. I'm going to be reading it as soon as we're done working today. Uh, and yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com, and I will link to them in the show notes as well. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, if you have any, to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And if you do that, make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Uh, That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends and spread the word about the show any way you can. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will talk to you tomorrow.